Um, where was I? Uh, the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 in the book of Acts really demonstrate a common pattern that we find not only in the book of Acts, throughout the book of Acts, but it's also a pattern that is common within the Christian life. See, at the end of chapter 11, uh, the church was experiencing just incredible success. Uh, they were doing everything that their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had commanded them to do. They were, they were scattering the gospel. They were embracing new believers. They were making disciples. It's one of those periods that you look back on and you begin to say, you know, that was the best of times. Well, immediately after this, at the very beginning of chapter 12, uh, we see a period that, you, that might be considered by the church as the worst of times. See, in Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it begins... About that time, Herod the king laid, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded, to, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So there we see that cycle again. At one moment, you, the church is experiencing unprecedented success. And in the very next moment, they find themselves reeling from the loss of James and the imprisonment of Peter. Again, it's kind of a reminder or a picture of this cyclical type thing that we see within the Christian life of constant highs and lows. At one moment, we are experiencing these incredible highs. At the next moment, we seem to be experiencing sometimes unimaginable lows. It's kind of like going on a dream vacation that you've chosen to spare no expense and, and, and you go on it and it's amazing and that's the high only to come home and receive the visa bill. And at that moment, you see just exactly what it means to spare no expense, and that's the low. And this is a little bit of what you experience in the Christian life. If you've been walking with God at any time, you can certainly understand that the highs and lows of the Christian life are the natural rhythms of the Christian life. Here in this passage, we see kind of one of the reasons why this seems to happen to us so often. And one of the reasons it happens so often is because there's a battle that is constantly going on. And this battle is going on between an enemy who wants to desperately destroy God's people and God who wants to desperately save and to deliver his people. This is constantly going on. Now, this is a part of our story today and a part of our story next week. And, and not to spoil it, but let me ask you, who do you think ultimately wins in the end? God. Yes, God always wins. John Stott and his commentary on the book of Acts is still helpful when he writes this. He says, indeed, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat. In other words, ups and downs, although with the assurance that even the powers of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church since it is built securely on the rock. Amen? And so we, we know that. So he, here's where we find ourselves this morning. There are some of you rare creatures that are experiencing the highs of the Christian life right now. Everything is going awesome. Everything is going incredible. And we love you. We don't hate you for that. We, 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 we praise God for that. And here's the only advice I can give you is enjoy it while it lasts, right? Enjoy it while it lasts. Now, for the rest of those, you might find yourself maybe in more of a low time. And I don't mean just low because there's a lot of difficulties happening inside of your life. I mean low because specifically in your life, you actually feel and sense and see the attack of the enemy against you. 
trying to destroy you. And you, it, it's just, it's, it's very real. It's different than just having a bad hair day. This is something completely and utterly different. And I think this morning, before we take the Lord's Supper, I think I just want to remind you again of John Stott's word and really the, the teaching of the word of God this morning, that you can be assured that even the powers of death and hell will never prevail over Christ's church. It will never. But in the meantime, what do we do? We know that Christ is victorious. We know that he's ultimately going to be victorious. He has won the war, but we know that there is progression. It's going to take us a little time to be able to get to that point where we actually live within that reality. So what do we do in the meantime? I think in the meantime, we remember two very encouraging truths. Two things. First of all, we remember the superior power of prayer. We remember the, su- the superior power of prayer. Now, the Herod that's mentioned here is actually Herod Antipas. It's not, he, he was the grandson of Herod the Great. And apparently, he began to make a practice of persecuting early believers. And uh, he did it because it seemed to appease and to please the crowds. And not only the crowds, but, of course, the, the Jewish leaders. And the more that he persecuted, the happier they were. And so he was not only persecuting the, the, the lay people of the church, but also the leaders of the church. We see him destroying James, uh, James, who was one of the apostles, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and, and so, so the, the, the crowds were excited about that. They were loving him because of this action. And so he began to think to himself, well, if they love that, then certainly if I get a hold of Peter, the leader of not only the church, but the leader of these disciples, I arrest him, imprison him, and put him to death, then they're really going to love me. So he arrests him, but there's a little bit of a problem. He can't take them to trial, and he can't kill them because he arrests them during the period of really the Passover in, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And according to Jewish law, a, a, a person, a Jewish person especially, was not to be tried or put to death during this particular particular uh, festival, these holy days. And so he doesn't want to anger the people, so he decides that he's going to wait. And so he, he sits back, puts him in prison, and he waits patiently for this time to be over. Now, you have to know that the religious leaders were all grins and giggles over this. They love the fact that now the king was in on this, and now they were going to arrest Peter, and they're going to place him in prison. And they're excited, but yet they're nervous at the same time. Why? Because they know it's pretty easy to arrest Peter, pretty easy to get him in jail. It's just hard to keep him in jail. Because there's been two times already in this story of ours in the book of Acts that they placed him in prison, and immediately he seems to get out. The very first time in chapter 5, he's placed in prison, and a very unlikely hero comes to the scene. A man by the name of Gamaliel begins to preach to this group of Jewish leaders and says, you know, I think the best thing for us to do is just let it go and let God determine whether he's of God or not. And he, he, he's out. That couldn't have made those religious leaders very happy. And then again, later on, he finds himself in prison. He's arrested for preaching the gospel in the temple. So they put hands on him. They put him in jail. And the next morning before the spiritual leaders, religious leaders can, can really drink their morning coffee, he's already back at it, been rescued supernaturally by an angel. And so here they are again. And so perhaps, the Bible doesn't say, but perhaps maybe they make this known to Herod. Hey, Herod, he's a slippery one, man. You got to watch this guy. Tells him what happens. And so he begins to do his due diligence to make sure that he remains. The Bible says that he takes four groups of soldiers. And, and, and the whole idea is that each of them would really serve for about six hours at a time. And then a new group would come in, all to remain fresh. Uh, during the night, they would serve for three hours, making sure that they stayed awake and aware of what was ultimately going on. 
And within this prison cell, one soldier would be bound to Peter's right hand by a chain, the other to his left hand. And then outside of that locked prison cell would be two more guards that were stationed to make sure that nobody got in and especially to make sure that nobody got out. And then on the outside of that, there would be a massive iron gate that would ultimately lead to the streets there in Jerusalem. And so you imagine as he, as he makes all these preparations and he uses everything in his arsenal to make sure that he secures Peter, that he had to be thinking, now that ought to do it. That ought to be enough. But we find out that it wasn't. All the odds were stacked against Peter. It wasn't just the religious leaders after him and the crowds after him. Now he has a king that is after him, which means he has all of the power, authority, swords, guards, and prisons imaginable to be able to use against God's people. And God's people have none of those things. But they do have one thing. They have the power of prayer. The Bible says in verse 5, note this, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Little did Herod know, as he was sitting back thinking everything was secure and everything was good, not, didn't have a care in the world, there was a small group of believers who had gathered together in a house in the city of Jerusalem, and they are praying earnestly before God for the release of Peter. And they're praying and they're, they're calling out to God for this. And, 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 and here's what I would call, this is what I think the word of God is trying to lead us to understand and to do. When will you and I as God's people finally begin to recognize the superior power that we possess in prayer? Over and over again, the Bible encourages us to pray. It says, pray without ceasing, for this is what? The will of God. In all things, through prayer and supplication, make your requests be known to God. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, now listen, I'm going to teach you specifically how you ought to pray. And then he begins and says, when you pray, meaning that Jesus just assumes if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, prayer is going to be a regular part of that spiritual life, a regular part of that Christian life. And so he calls us to pray, but even though the conviction of the word of God is that believers will pray, the believers oftentimes don't share in the same conviction. Oftentimes when we look at prayer, we kind of look at it as kind of like something that we do as a last resort, kind of a Hail Mary, right? Just, hey man, can't really do anything else. Let's just throw a Hail Mary prayer out there. Hopefully God will catch it before it lands on the ground. And we almost begin to, maybe we don't say it, but If we were to say it, we might begin saying something to the effect of this. We might just sit back and go, well, you know what? There's nothing else we can do now except for prayer. Pray. Man, look, we've already tried to do it all ourselves. All of our power, all of our energy, all of our wisdom has been used on all of this. Now I guess we're just going to have to depend on God. Well, that's probably a pretty good thing to do from the beginning, right? And so he sits back and he's depending. and, And not only do we struggle sometimes... To even go to God in prayer and understand that's the first thing we need to do in any spiritual battle at all. But we also struggle even believing that once we do pray that God's even going to answer it. We see an example of that again here in the text. Spoiler alert, Peter is prayed for to be delivered. He is delivered, just so, to let, so that you know. He, he escapes. He, he's, he's out. He's, he's out of the particular prison. When he gets out, he's got to find somewhere to go. 
He can't just stay out in the streets. So he wants to go back to God's people. His heart yearns for God's people. So he goes to a home of a woman by the name of Mary. She is the, she's the mother of a young man named John Mark, who is cousins with Barnabas. That will be significant later on in her story. But, but here he comes to the home, and he's outside of the gate, and he begins to call outside of the gate, Hey, guys, it's me. Peter doesn't actually say that, but I assume this is what he's doing. And so he's knocking on the gate. Inside are these guys praying, Dear Jesus, in in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would deliver Peter from those chains and from those guards. And all of a sudden, this little servant girl named Rhoda, Rhoda literally means rosebud, little rosebud, goes over to the door. And all of a sudden, she hears Peter calling from the door. And and she hears him, and and she gets so excited, so excited that she doesn't even open the gate. She runs back to those who are praying and goes, you're never going to believe this. Peter is outside. And what do they do? You're crazy. You're out of your mind. Why in the, you are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. What in the world, why are you disturbing us? This is serious work. We are earnestly praying for the release of Peter. Don't bother us anymore unless it's important. Right? You, you, you see the irony here, yes? And so they go, now leave us alone. We need to go back to prayer for Peter's release. And so the little girl sits there and she goes, I'm telling you, he's out there. I saw him. I know he's out there. She's so persistent that they believe that she must have seen something. And so the scriptures say that she, they ultimately say it must be an angel. Now here's what they were thinking. The Jewish people believe that every one of us had a guardian angel. And that guardian angel looked like whoever that person was that they were guardian. Of, right? And, and, and here's the kicker is they usually only show up and appear when somebody dies. So what they believe is he must have died and now his guardian angel is appearing in his form and he's at the, day, at the gate calling and trying to get their attention. Do you see the irony again? It's easier for them to believe that there is an angel in the form of Peter after he has died there at the gate knocking and calling out to them than the fact that he's, God actually answered their prayer and that it's actually Peter at the gate. So they're having a hard time believing all of this. We oftentimes wait to pray in the midst of difficulties. I'm telling you, it's the first, the most thorough, the first, the end, the middle. It's what should be happening every day in our life in order when we are in the midst of the battle for our lives is prayer. Why is prayer so significant? This passage serves as a reminder of the supernatural power of prayer that we have, which taps into the supernatural power of God, which is far greater than the power of the enemy that stands against us. Amen? So I don't know where you are. I don't know how low you are. You need to start praying. Amen? So first of all, there's a reminder there of the superior power of prayer. Number two, it's a reminder of the superior rest in Christ. Superior rest in Christ. Notice, if you will, beginning in verse 6. So now we're going to go back. We're going to see kind of a little bit more on how this whole thing went down, how he got out of prison. Look at verse 6. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two guards bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were were guarding the prison. Now, Peter's circumstances, again, could not have been painted in a more gloomy light by Luke. We, we get that, right? I mean, here's a man. He's chained to two soldiers inside with chains inside of a cell. It's locked. Outside of it are two more guys guarding, making sure nobody gets out. On top of that, there is another iron gate that you'd have to get out of to be able to get out of the, the prison itself. The next morning is a trial schedule. 
And the very next morning, he knows if he goes through that trial, he is certainly going to be put to death. There is no escaping this. And yet, what does he do in the midst of all of this? The Bible says he was what? Sleeping. How in the world does that work? How does that happen? Let let me say this first. This type of rest cannot be known apart from faith in Jesus Christ. For those who are not in Jesus Christ, they cannot know or experience this type of supernatural rest. Why? Because the world outside of Christ, their rest is found in circumstances. When all the circumstances are just right, then they can finally rest. When there's money in the bank, when the, banks, when, when, when the bills are paid, when the children aren't acting up, when they're obeying, when they're doing well in school, when everybody is healthy, then, finally then, we can find ourselves in a place of rest. But rest for those in Christ is superior because it has nothing to do with circumstances. In fact, it's independent of our circumstances. It can even be had in prison, chained to guards, and even facing certain death in the morning, how is this possible? Let me give you two quick ways how you and I, this type of rest can be possible in the midst of these situations. Number one, number one, there is rest that comes from knowing that if God has done it before, he can do it again. If God has done it before, he can do it again. I've already told you before, this is not Peter's first rodeo. This is not the first time that he had gotten in prison. This is not the first time that he is ultimately seeking possibly to, and doesn't say he's seeking, but possibly be delivered from God. It's happened not once, but twice before. And so Peter is able to rest because he knows that there's nothing that can ultimately restrain him and keep him and take his life unless ultimately it's going to be the willing of God, in fa- the will of God. In fact, it's just the opposite. He believes just like then that God can deliver him. Let me, my question for you is this. When are you and I going to come to that same conclusion? When are you and I going to come to that same conviction? How many times has God shown himself faithful in caring for you? How many times has God shown himself faithful in providing for you? How many times has God shown himself to care for you and to love you and to be able to rescue you? And yet, when God just gets done doing all of those things for us yesterday, when the new day comes and a new difficulty comes, you and I fall, begin to act like Dory from Finding Nemo, and we begin to suffer from short-term memory loss. It's, we act as though God has ne- we've never been in this situation before, that God has never extended his grace, that God has never ultimately delivered us. But the rest of God, this type of rest that we see here, can never be had until you and I start perpetually reminding ourselves of all that God has done in the past and be assured that God can do it in the present. Amen? Number two, second, there is, and we got to hurry, Lord's Supper, got to rush through this as fast as we can. Second, there is rest that comes from knowing that if God does not deliver us, it is because he has something better for us. See, I think there's a mistake when we come to a passage like this. And it's a fine line, but just follow me for a second. The, the, the temptation is to be able to jump into this and to be able to go, who am I in this story? I'm Peter. I am definitely Peter. I'm going through difficult times. I'm going through hardships. I need God to be able to forgive me. I need God to be able to rescue me. He did. Therefore, I am absolutely convinced that God will, 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 will deliver me. But there's somebody else in this story you remember back in, verse, I think it was verse 2, earlier in, there's another man by the name of James. Did you, did you catch that? 
James, too, was an apostle of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ. But guess what? He wasn't delivered. What was he? He was killed by the sword. And so both of us could sit there. So the question for you and I is, which one are we? Are we James or are we Peter? The answer is we could be either. We could be either. But the question is this. Which one was truly better off? Was it James or was it Peter? Which one? Well, it depends on how you answer that. If you're answering temporally from just the physical perspective that so many Christians get wrapped up in, then we would sit there and go, Peter, man, he didn't get sliced in half. He's definitely got it better. But if you're thinking spiritually and long-term and full, full eternity, you sit back and go, well, James has got it much better. Why? Well, in the words of Paul, what he would say is he would look at Peter, he would look at, excuse me, he would look at Peter and say, to live is Christ. But for James, to die is gain. For the very thing that he lived for, he now gains. So here's the question. Will God, can God deliver you out of difficulty? Yes. Will he deliver you out of difficulty? Yes, unless he has something greater for you. What I mean by that is it might not be, some people automatically are thinking, okay, well, I wanted that boat and I missed out on Craigslist and I can't get it now. And so, there's, but you know what? Praise God. God's got it something better for me. You know, there's a car and I missed out on that car, man, just a little bit. And oh, man, it just kills me. I just can't get over it. But that just means God's got me a Lamborghini somewhere for the same price. I know it's good. It's not what we're, it's not what we're talking about. I ask you not to think like the world. I ask you to think like the children of God. And the children of God, the reason that it's much better is because sometimes God doesn't deliver us and allows us to remain in the midst of these difficulties and these hardships because what is better is a greater faith in Christ. When we remain in the difficulty and he doesn't immediately rescue us from this, what it does is it builds your and I relationship with God as we become more dependent than ever. We become so dependent because of the difficulty that without it, we would have never grown in Christ as he had desired us to be able to grow. That's what I mean by something greater. Suffering in this world or escaping the suffering in this world is not greater than you and I being transformed in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So two things we ought to remember is simply this, that we remember the superior power of prayer. We pray, and we pray, and we pray. And it's not something we just add on at the end. It's something that we as believers in Jesus Christ are defined by. Number two is that we rest. And the reason that we rest is because we know that God has done it once. He can, he's done it a million times. He can do it again. But we also know that if he chooses not to do it, that he has something greater for us. Now, before we close in this, let me, let me just do one thing. Every message, all right, y'all look up here just for a minute. I know you were captivated by every word I was speaking earlier, but just hone in just for one more moment. Every message, I try to beeline to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that? By some character, by some person, by some word, by some phrase, I sit there and then I beeline and I use that to go right to the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's why. Because for you and for me, this is not about us just doing something better. It's about, we do because Christ has already done for us. So here's the picture that I'm trying to get. Where is the gospel in this story? Where is it? Well, it's all over. But let me give you a specific indication. Look at verse 7, if you will. Here we see the specifics of how he was delivered. The Bible says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. 
And a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and he woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. And he did not know that what he was, was being done by the angel was real. But he thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened, it opened for them on its own accord. Are you kidding me? And then they went out and they went along one street and immediately the angel left and Peter came to himself and he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What this shows is that this was no escape on the part of Peter. This was a rescue on the part of God. Did you notice that there was nothing that Peter really did? There was nothing here that Peter could have sat back and said, man, I'm boasting in how I escaped from that place. There's nothing boasting that he can do. The angel woke him up. The angel instructed him to get up and get dressed. The chains fell off his wrists. He walked past to, to unaware or sleeping guards. The iron gate simply, simply opened up by itself. There's nothing that Luke can say that sat there and goes, let me tell you what I accomplished. I was able to rescue myself from death. And neither can you and I say of ourselves when it comes to the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life that we earned any bit of it. Instead, Jesus Christ accomplished it all through his death, burial, and resurrection. He's the one who broke the chains. He's the one who set the captives free. You and I, in Christ, have been rescued by the mercy and the grace of God. You sit back and you think to yourself, well, how in the world can I be rescued? Well, there's nothing I can do. Two things you can kind of do. Believe and repent. You say, well, isn't that doing something? Not necessarily. Really what it is is the way that you receive the good news of Jesus Christ. On one hand, you have belief and faith. On the other, you have repentance, which is turning from your sin. When those two things come together, you can finally and are finally ready to receive the fullness of God's gift of, of, of salvation, forgiveness of sins, and restoration with our relationship between us and God. Will you believe and repent? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the power of your word. God, you are a good, good, awesome, amazing God. Lord, I pray right now, before we take the Lord's Supper, that everyone in here will do business with you. Lord, that some of us will come and repent. Some of us will come to believe for the first time in faith. Some of us will believe even more because of the word of God that we've heard this morning. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand? Will you stand? We're going to have just a couple moments of response to prepare your hearts before God. If you want to know more about Christ, I just ask you to come. Love to talk with you. Love to counsel with you as God continues to work. All right, as we sing.